0: Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Field Church. Everybody awake? Good morning. Good morning. There they are. Everybody's awake now. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I am. My name's Chad Wiles. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the Field Church, and my role is to mainly oversee our biblical counseling. And we are starting today something we're really excited about, which is some standalone series based upon subjects of counseling that our world faces, that we as individuals face. And so we're gonna take some time every couple months or so to just kind of drop in, and I'll be doing some of these standalone series that will talk about some subjects that we we all struggle with and face as we go throughout life. And so today we're gonna be talking about the subject of fear and anxiety. I chose fear and anxiety because many of us deal with this. And throughout our lifetime, at different stages, at different phases, We've all faced, and some of us struggle. Maybe even at a deeper level. Maybe it impacts our life even more than just occasionally. And so, I wanted to take some time, as we have seen and heard from the world, and how the world maybe faces this struggle. I wanted us to have some time to to see what the Bible says about it. What does God say? How do we deal with this biblically? Does God have anything to say about this subject, and how that we can begin to deal with it and face it? And so. Some things that I want to just talk about real quickly, just some stats to show you just how prevalent this, this issue is in our culture. Um, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, they say that 40 million Americans over the age of 18 are affected by anxiety in roughly 18% of the nation's population. I actually think that it's much higher than that. I think that's a low, a low stat because that's just the people that come and seek help, seek counsel, that we're able to have statistics on. But I want to take just a few minutes just to show you uh, what, the, what the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic criteria that psychologists would use if you came in to see a counselor, um, what kind of criteria they would use to decide if, if you maybe uh, um, apply for, or if you would be diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder. So, the first criteria is if you have excessive anxiety and worry apprehension or expectation occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of events or activities such as work or school or performance I think all of us could say at some point in our lives we've had some excessive worry and apprehension towards any many of subjects in our lives so that first criteria alone we could all probably walk into a counselor's office today and become diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I'll read a few more of these. I won't do them all, but just to give you um, some ideas. Uh, the next one is, the individual finds it difficult to control worry. I don't know about you, but when you start worrying, it's not very hard. It's, it's pretty hard to turn that off. It's not very easy to just say, like, when somebody comes to you, like, just don't worry about it. How often does that, hurt? Does that help? Somebody says, like, don't worry about it. You know what? Thank you for saying that. Man, I was worrying and I never thought about not worrying. (laughs) Thank you. I fixed it. Of course not. You can't stop worrying. So to find it difficult to control worry, yes. And all of us who worry find it difficult to control that. So we've already got one and two. I'll go one more just to drive the point home. Letter C on the criteria, the anxiety and worry are associated with three or more of the following six symptoms with at least Uh, Some symptoms having been present for more days than not for the past six months. So restlessness, feeling keyed up or on edge. You got something coming down the pipe that you're a little bit worried about? Probably a little bit restless, a little bit keyed up, a little bit on edge, right? Being easily fatigued. Well, just want to lay in bed, just want to escape. I don't even want to deal with this, right? We've all been there. Difficulty concentrating or mind going blank irritability, muscle tension, or sleep disturbance, difficulty falling or staying asleep or restless, unsatisfying sleep. Anybody got anxiety disorder (laughs) so far? Right. And the reason why I bring this up and and kind of drive this point home is I want us to see that the world or the the psychological world and well-meaning people trying to help people who are struggling with anxiety see being fearful or anxious as abnormal if you have fear if you have anxiety then you're abnormal something's wrong with you and what I want to help you see and we know as Christians is actually it's very normal it's a part of being uh, human it's a part of the human condition we all struggle with it from different times different levels who hasn't worried about the future who hasn't worried about your safety who hasn't worried about your children or the lack thereof or the wanting of or a relationship that you wish you had or you do have that you're afraid that might fall apart. Or, the, or just death and survival and what if I get cancer? What if something happens to one of my family members? What if, what if, what if? Right? Who hasn't worried about those things? That's just a normal part of the condition, the human condition, right? We are finite, weak humans with no real ability to stop anything or control anything. And so if you came in here feeling like you had it all together, I'm sorry to tell you, you don't. And you know that deep down, right? If you spend your life filling up your bank account to be safe, all it takes is one bout with cancer to drain that like that. There's many people who have very successful lives and get something like cancer, and after the medical bills, you're bankrupt. So you can't trust in that, right? You can't trust in tomorrow. You don't even know if tomorrow will come. You don't even know if the next few minutes coming. come. And I know I'm probably, like, if you're an anxious person, you're probably getting more anxious. I promise eventually we'll get to some help for this. But I'm just trying to help drive the point home, right? And I'm very sensitive to the fact. I want you to hear me say this. I'm not making light of the struggle of anxiety. I'm actually trying to do the opposite, I'm trying to help you see that it's actually pretty normal that we face this. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that, that many of us because of anxiety have struggled with maybe some life-altering struggles like panic attacks or sleeplessness or exhaustion. It happens, right? It's the natural progression as this thing goes undealt with as we get deeper into our fears. That's the natural progression of that. And so I know that, that that's true for some of you and I hope that today I'm able to bring some hope to that. So for the Christian this is not new news, right? God addresses the subject of fear more in the Bible than any other topic. It's actually recorded 365 times in the Bible. I don't think there's any accident that God basically gives a reminder of fear and His answer to it for every day of the year in the yearly calendar, right? God knows. God knows we're going to struggle with this. God knows that we are finite, fallible, weak humans that really have no ability outside of him. God knows that and so he's sensitive to that and he gives us many things to say about it. But here's the issue that I think we find in our culture. Because the psychological culture or the world or the counselors that we tend to go to or what the world has to say about it has taken God out of the equation that when they approach issues like anxiety, they're coming at it from a perspective that God isn't, a, isn't real or doesn't exist it's out of Darwinism and I'm not going to go into all that but that's how it sprung up and to, to be able to face human conditions and human situations and to find help outside of the existence of God and the problem with that is all they can do to deal with it or all that we can do without God is to deal with it emotionally circumstantially or physically it's symptomatic our approach it's symptomatic we can talk about it and try to deal with it in an emotional sense and try to relate and try to comfort which is a good thing but it doesn't ultimately answer the issue we can try to do it physically we can get medications we can get things of that nature that help take away some of the symptoms but it doesn't take away the root of the reason right we can also try to deal with it circumstantially try to change our circumstances or avoid certain circumstances so that we don't have to deal with the thing that scares us the most but ultimately that just causes slavery and takes away the freedom that we get to have in this life. And these are well-meaning counselors. I'm, if, if you're a counselor, if you're not a believer in Christ, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about what you do. I know that it's coming from a place of wanting to help, but ultimately it doesn't answer it. I like to use this example a lot of times when I, when I counsel folks individually when it comes to just dealing with behaviors. is It would be like, you know that alarm in your car when you get in you don't put your seatbelt on. Anybody else ever try to drive without a seatbelt? Gotcha, <laughs> right? None of us ever do that, right? But in case you ever were to do that, there's this, this alarm that starts going off that reminds you in, in most new cars to put your seatbelt on. And it would be like if you got home and you got tired of hearing that noise. And so you went to your tool shed and you grabbed a hammer and then you walked into your car and you just beat out the dashboard of your car to get that noise to stop it would probably work eventually like you would break the horn and it probably wouldn't work anymore but it would cause so much more damage as well and you never actually fix the real issue of the problem which was just put your seatbelt on and when we don't address God and we don't acknowledge God we don't ever address the real issue and it's it's like taking a hammer to our car and it just continues to lead down more paths and, and more things that don't really offer real solutions And so today, we're going to examine the actual cause of fear and anxiety. We're going to look at it through scripture, we're going to look at it through the life of Elijah, and I'm excited about this. We're going to to read a lot of scripture today, but it's going to be fun, and I promise we'll get out on time. I know it's a little bit warm in here, I'm very aware, and I hope that it's worth your while to sit through this. I'm thankful that you came to worship with us today. And so we're going to understand that addressing the issue of fear and anxiety has to be dealt with through belief we have to deal with what we believe about ourselves what we believe about the world around us and what we believe about worship and who we should put our confidence in my hope today if you came in here and this is a struggle for you or if you ever struggle with this or or whatever the case may be is that we'll walk through and we'll find some hope and freedom for this issue it's not i'm, I'm not in forty minutes going to be able to like solve the issue but hopefully We walk away with some tools and some understanding of how to begin to approach this and to draw closer to God and to find faith in the midst of fear. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text today and and begin to walk through it. Father God, we come to you today, and many of us as we're thinking about this subject of fear and anxiety, it hits really deep and personal. And many of us struggle with this day in and day out. For many of us, maybe even coming here today was a struggle um, but found courage to do so. And God, I pray that today as we look at your word that you would speak through me, you would speak through your word, and through your example of the life of Elijah, you would give us help and hope to begin to draw near to you and find hope and freedom that we desperately need. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to be in First Kings 19. That's the passage that we're going to land in. But we've got to talk about everything that's going on around that passage before we get there to really understand the crux of the issue of anxiety and fear. So, we're going to look at the life of Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets in the history of the Bible. Many of you have probably heard the story of Elijah where he gets taken up in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. The guy doesn't even physically die on this earth like most people do, right? To just show how holy and how set apart God had made Elijah. He had he didn't have to face death like most of us. Only Jesus and I think Enoch was the only other two that that had the same kind of um, ending, and before we get to the part of Elijah's story that we're going to walk through today, I just want to set the scene for who Elijah was. Just kind of look through a few things that were happening at that time, uh, and what the atmosphere in Israel was at that time as well. This all takes place after the kingship of David and Solomon, but before the exile out of Israel. So we're in the middle of this. There had been many kings, and many of them had been wicked, and they had constantly turned their backs away from the Lord. And Ahab, who was the king at this time, was the worst of the worst. Um, he, Elijah arrives on the scene in chapter 17 in the, in the story of King Ahab when Ahab took reign over Israel. And here's what the Bible has to say about Ahab in 1 Kings 16:30 30 through 33 It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a big statement if you've read some of the kingship before that they, a lot of people had made God really mad and had turned their backs and had led Israel to turn their backs against God and Ahab was the worst and his wife Jezebel she was a different kind of evil altogether they were the worst uh, and, and so Elijah enters in this time to to begin to face and to face off with and be a mouthpiece for the Lord I just want to explain who Baal was, just so we can understand what was happening there with this idol worship of Baal. Baal was known as the storm god. He, was the, he had the fertility of the land was dependent upon him sending rain. So in this day and age, crops, fruit of crops, all that stuff was just like our money and currency today. So without the rain coming, without crops growing, everybody was going to starve to death. No one was going to have anything. And so it was a really big deal. And so they turned their backs on God and they were beginning to pray to this this false God, Baal. And his likeness, he was he was known to have weapons. His weapons were thunder and lightning, and his symbolic representation was a bull. So they had this big statue of this bull that everybody was turning their turning to and worshiping and trusting to send the rain so that their crops would be prosperous and everybody would prosper. Right? So then we see Elijah, he comes on the scene to confront Ahab and Jezebel as a mouthpiece of the Lord." So here's some things that, that God used Elijah for. So, and he used Elijah for some really powerful things. First thing is he, he has Elijah come to Ahab in their first confrontation. And God gave Elijah the courage and boldness that was unmatched in scripture. And here's what he said to Ahab the very first time. He says in 1 Kings 17.1, it says, "'Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word So, get this contrast we're going to trust in this false God to provide rain and hope and crops and God's gonna say you know what Fine, I'm gonna stop it from raining and it's not gonna rain until I say so and Israel suffered and it was a drought one of the worst in Israel's history um, and then later in the chapter, God uses Elijah to help a widow during this drought. She's about to die. Her, her oil is about to dry up. She's not going to have any more food, any more water. She tells Elijah, we're just going to make some food and die. And he comes in, and God uses him to do a miracle to where her food never runs out. And then her son gets sick a little bit later in that chapter, and he uses Elijah to actually bring him back to life. And so God's using Elijah in some really super powerful ways. But one of the ways that he uses Elijah this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This is a confrontation that puts the Avengers movies to shame. They could just make a movie of this and we'd all be fired up and want to follow Elijah. This is, this is an awesome story and so it starts in chapter 18 verse 17 and we're gonna look at this and this is a story where Elijah goes toe-to-toe with Ahab and all of his prophets, okay? So open your Bibles to chapter 18 starting in verse 17. We're just gonna walk through this And see what's happening here. And this is all going to lead us to chapter 19 where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And I'm going to go through this rather quickly. Okay? Starting in verse 17. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. That's right there a pretty powerful statement. You have... Ahab's causing the trouble of Israel, and he's saying now you are because of what you've done you and your wife and Listen, they're the king and queen. They have all the power in the world to try to kill Elijah or whatever But he shows great courage in the face of that and tells him the truth to his face, right? And then he says now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table Send all 850 of your prophets, and we're going to square off. And then it says this, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel. So now we've got an audience of the whole nation of Israel who are surrounding this standoff, right? So just picture this in your mind. We're on Mount Carmel, this huge crowd. Like a, imagine a big stadium full of people watching this battle happen, and there's 850 of these prophets and Elijah right? And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And that's a warning for us today. This is going to be a lot of what we talk about. There's two choices. There's no gray area. If God is God, then follow him like he is God. And if not, then follow the way of this world. But don't pretend like there's a middle ground. That's what he's saying to them. Don't act like you can, you can follow both. Choose. And then he says, And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. So here we go, setting the scene. You got your bull, I got my bull. We're not going to set it on fire. We're just going to pray. And whoever's God shows up, that's who the real God is. Let's see. Let's put your big boy pants on. Let's find out how big your God is, right? This, I mean, this is bold. Because I know Ahab and Jezebel had to be thinking like, man, we just need to kill this guy. But they're probably thinking like, we're going to embarrass him. So, then Elijah keeps going, right? And then it says, And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's missing, or he's relieving himself. He went to the bathroom. <laughs> right? Like, this dude's up here just like mocking him. Like, or, or he fell asleep, or perhaps he's on a journey, and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved a, until the time of the offering of the oblation, ob- and there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So they had every chance. There's 450 prophets, not even counting the 400 of the Asherah, and they're dancing around, they're praying, they're cutting themselves, they're doing everything to try to get Baal to answer. And Elijah's laughing, he's mocking them, he's being sarcastic, he's he's yelling in front of all of Israel, right? And why would he do that? Because we see Elijah knew what was about to happen. Then in verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, "Come near me," and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. That had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. He took an impossible situation and made it even more impossible. I don't know if you've ever tried to set a fire in water, but it doesn't work, right? So he's making a point here. You can't say that I had any tricks. You can't say that I did anything to make this happen. I want to do it so much, so I'm going to cover this in water. And at, the, and at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this, this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones. And the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of of the rushing of rain so Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of the Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees and he said to his servant go up now look toward the sea and he went up and he looked and said there is nothing and he said go again seven times and the seventh time he said behold a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea and he said go up say to Ahab prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you and in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel so not only does God rain down fire consumes everything but then right after that Elijah says now go back because now I'm gonna cause it to rain you have zero control your God is false and my God is mighty Elijah had courage Elijah had courage in the face of fear because he believed in who he was serving. He believed in God, and he knew that whatever happened, that God was worth it, right? And so we see this courage. Now, you're probably thinking, well, I thought we were talking about anxiety and fear. It doesn't look like Elijah has any. Well, now we're getting to chapter 19. We had to talk about all that to really set up how does this work? Like, if we just have faith, right, shouldn't we be fine, like no anxiety? Well, Let's look at chapter 19. Let's keep reading. And then we'll get into our main text today. 19. Let's look at the first three verses. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there." How does this happen? Elijah just did this epic, I mean, if there was ever if there was microphones back in that day, it would be the first ever mic drop. Like, you don't get much more than that, right? Like, what else is there to say? God is God. I've proven it, I've shown it. He was courageous in the face of this evil king. And all it took was some words from the queen for him to be afraid. How does that happen? Well, point number one today, something I want us to really think about is fear thrives in self-centric thoughts and beliefs. Fear thrives in self-centric thoughts and beliefs. Satan uses real possibilities to fuel fear-based beliefs. Satan uses real possibilities to fuel fear-based beliefs. It's a real possibility. Like, she was the queen. She had the power to send people after him to try to kill him. That wasn't some false belief. And the things that we're afraid of and the things that we find fearful are not fake things, usually. They're things that very real could happen, right? They're things that have happened to other people a lot of times. There's things we've seen in the news, things that we know can and will happen, maybe even sometime in our life. But Elijah forgot about one very important thing that gave him the courage the time before. Elijah forgot about God. In that moment, Elijah began to think about himself. Elijah forgot about God. Elijah forgot about making God's name great. Who cares if you get killed? Isn't your job as a prophet to just make God's name great? Like, you knew the risk. And in all those other times, you were just fine with all that risk. But for some reason in this moment, the risk was too great. Elijah was thinking about self-preservation. Elijah forgot about God's power and his provision time and time again in Elijah's life. We just talked about... Things that we probably would believe we're sitting here. If I saw one of those things happen, there's no way that I would waver from the Lord, that I would never be afraid of anything happening. Who cares, right? Because if I saw God do that, He's real. And at the end of it, if I die, I'm going to be with Him. So who cares? That's just not true. That's not true because many of us sitting here today have seen God do a lot of miracles in our lives. Very real things. You have found peace in times of fear but it comes back and all of it is based off of what you believe and when you become self-centric, when you start thinking about yourself and you start caring about yourself and what happens to you more than you care about God's name and who God is and you forget about the power of God you will become fearful and anxious and it will begin to overtake you so some questions I want us to think about before we move on to point number two is when you're faced with possibilities of danger, hopelessness or struggle or death or etc., or whatever, who is the center of your belief in that moment? You or God? Who are you trusting in when life gets tough? Yourself, your abilities, your need to be good and to be powerful enough and good enough or God? Because remember, what Elijah said back in our last chapter, you can't have it both ways. Either God is God and you're going to serve him, or you're going to believe in the things of this world, or you're going to believe in yourself to be the one who takes care of it, and that's going to cause issues. So, point number one, fear thrives in self-centric thoughts and beliefs. Let's keep reading verse 4 and 5. Then here's what happens to Elijah. But he himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. So point number two, fear beliefs cause physical, emotional, and worship responses. Fear beliefs cause physical, emotional, emotional and worship responses. Look what happens to Elijah when he begins to believe that that he's gonna die, he believes that she's won, he believes that there's impending doom. What does he do? He runs. He sits under a tree. He asks to die. Because he knows God's called him to be his mouthpiece, so what's the only way out? <laughs> I'm done. Kill me. I'd rather be dead than to face this anymore. As, can anybody relate to that feeling? When you're facing something big in your life, you feel like escaping, you feel like avoiding, you feel like maybe sometimes you've gotten to some dark places where the idea of maybe even being taken out of this world feels better than having to face whatever it is that's, that's coming up. Right? These lead to things like panic attacks, phobias, Right, Because when perceived beliefs rooted in real possibilities are thought of as inevitable conclusions, we begin to have real life responses. I'm not making fun of panic attacks, it's a very real thing. Our beliefs are very powerful, it begins, it's connected to our emotions and our actions and you get real physical changes, your heart starts to race, you begin to sweat. You begin to panic because when that perceived belief, that real possibility becomes a foregone conclusion, it, it might as well be happening. My mom will not fly on an airplane. She'd rather die. <laughs> and she gets literal panic attacks, even the thought of having to get in one of those. Even no matter how much she loves me and my family, she'd rather drive, she'd rather take the longer trip, the idea of getting on a plane not going to happen, and she would have a panic attack. She would get short of breath. Her heart would begin to race. She might even pass out. You'd have to drug her to get her on the plane, and then if she woke up in the middle of that, she might tear that plane apart trying to get off. It'd be, it'd be a bad situation, right? That's a real thing for her, and many of you have a lot of real things that happen in us and to us, and I just want you to know that it's because of what you're trusting in and believing in. I know it doesn't feel like that, it feels like it's something that happens to you, but trust me, as you slow down your thoughts and beliefs, and you look into what you're trusting in, and you look into what is actually happening in your thought life and your belief life, it is causing physical reaction, 100% of the time. And we talked about worship beliefs. So we talked about physical, we talked about emotional, what about worship? When we begin to feel afraid, and we begin to be self-centric in our belief systems, We begin to have things called idol worship start to happen. We begin to trust in things in the world around us like comforts, approval of people, successes, control, and all this sort of thing. And one of the most common ways that fear manifests itself in idol worship is the idol of control. When we feel out of control about the big things, we begin to really try to control the little things. Because it gives us some some feeling of, I've, I've still got control over this. I'm, I'm still, I'm not without control, like I, I, can, I can do something, right? Worrying is one symptom of the out of control. What is worrying? If I think about it enough, if I play it over enough scenarios in my head, if I can just, then I'll feel better about it. Then, I'll, then, I, then maybe it won't happen. Maybe I can worry this thing away, or maybe I can get some grip on this just through worrying. And when we say that out loud, that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> right? but it's what we do. It's a reaction. Sometimes this comes out in the way of the box checkers and the to-do listers in the room. And I know, I'm striking some chords here, and I'm stepping on some toes, and I'm not saying it's always bad to make a plan and have boxes to check off, and, but sometimes when life feels a little bit stressful and it feels a little bit out of control and I don't know what I'm going to do next, if I can just put a little plan together and kind of organize everything in life, and I can just check some boxes off, then I can feel like I'm doing something to, to move this thing along. I can, I'm doing something to fix this thing. I see a lot of smiling faces. I, I, think, I think some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Or some of you might be avoiders. I'm not going to go to that place. I, when I get in crowds and I, people start asking me, I just, it makes me uncomfortable. I get a little, I'm just going to stay home. I'm going to be a homebody. I'm not going to go. It's easier if I just don't do that thing, if I just stay away from that thing. Maybe money hoarders. If I just get that bank account big enough, then whatever happens, I think we can take care of it. And there's a list of things. So, some questions I want you to think about before we move on is when you're facing your fears, how do you respond? Just that simple question. When you're facing your fears, how do you respond? What's that natural reaction? What's that natural response? How many of the actions and habits of your life are designed to help you feel like you have control? How often do you pray? When life's going haywire, does it become non-existent? Or how many of those prayers consist of things that that would bring glory to God through you but go beyond your abilities, circumstances, or control? Or do those prayers focus on yourself and God helping you get out of that situation? Right? Some of these questions might help reveal some of that heart behind some of these things. So moving on to point number three. Number three says, the journey from fear to freedom is a process of belief that leads to faith in who God is and the reality of who we are. The the journey from fear to freedom is a process in belief. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a quick fix situation. But as you dig into those beliefs and you begin to look at those, it's a process of belief that leads to faith in who God is and the reality of who we are. Look what happens to Elijah starting in verse 6. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake cake baked on a hot stone and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the same mountain that we see back when Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments and Israel camps around. Same place, going right back there. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind Tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire but the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And we see this journey that God takes Elijah on. And in this journey, what we see is that the journey reveals God's love and character to Elijah along this path. We see Him send an angel, send food, strengthen him, takes him to the mountain to where his presence is puts him in a cave and he passes by him and shows him all his power and his might and then he comes to him in a still small voice and he asks him the same question, what are you doing here Elijah? and you could take that in so many different tones Elijah, what are you doing here? like buddy, like don't forget about me like why are you running? or Elijah, what are you doing here? why are you here? you're supposed to be out there what happened to your courage? Or Elijah, look at where you're at. What are you doing here? Remember your mind. Remember who I am. See my power. See my majesty. See who I am. And time and time again, he enters into Elijah's life along this journey. And I, and I think I, I should ask us Are you seeking the Lord in the midst of your fear? On this journey, things that you're struggling with, things that are hidden deep things that are causing you to be anxious are you taking time to stop and see what God's doing to see where he's at to see how he's using it to develop you to show his character to you and to show his love for you and to show how he is the one that you should turn to and to give you a greater freedom than you could ever have on your own when you feel like you're in control and you feel like you're the one who's making everything happen are you seeking him are you looking to him God in the Bible says, fear not 365 times, and that's always coupled with, "frying I am with you. Every single day we're going to face things that are going to cause fear. We're going to face impending doom. You may get cancer. You may get in a car wreck. You may not find that spouse. You may not be able to have kids. God may take away a family member or two. You may not get that job that you hope for. You may struggle financially. And on the list goes. But in the midst of that, do you see God? Do you see His provision? Is He enough? Is He enough, ultimately? And on this journey, do you check in to see that? Isaiah 41.10 says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise. That's a promise for every single one of us who believe in him. 100% of the time, God is going to be with you in whatever struggle. He will not forsake you. You don't have to be dismayed. It doesn't mean hard things won't happen. It just means he'll be in it with you. So we see that fear thrives in self-centric thoughts and beliefs. We see that when we get in that mode, that it can cause physical and emotional responses. And We also have learned today that the journey from fear to freedom is a process of belief that leads to faith in who God is and the reality of who we are. And the last thing, and maybe the most important thing, point number four is, freedom and courage comes when we repent of our false beliefs and renew our minds in what is true. This last little part here, and we're almost done. It says, And the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, You shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, I can't even say this word, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And and so so Elijah... Departed there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And then he goes on and he goes on to do everything that God tells him to do. See, courage does not come from an absence of fear, but it comes from fearing the one who is greater than our fears. He's standing there in front of God and God says, Listen, you keep saying you're the only one. I got 7,000 who haven't bowed their knees yet. Elijah, you're wrong. And don't forget, I'm going to anoint these new kings, I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one that has all the power. I'm the one who is sovereign. I'm the one who knows and controls the future. And I'm the one who gives eternal life. Don't forget that. That's why you're here. Now go and do as I've instructed. And we see Elijah repent, and he goes, and he does. And there's many more stories until he leaves the earth in that whirlwind. So I want to end with some questions, a couple scriptures, and then we're going to be done here, but as we're thinking about this, what do you believe about your life? I just want you to think about that for a second. I don't want you to give a church answer when you're writing down. That's not going to help you, and I'm not going to read it. No one else is either. But what do you believe about your life? Really? What do you believe about God? What do you actually believe about God? Because what about God in your life? Here's something that's true, and, I just, and this is to, to love you, not to hurt you, but many of us operate as if God's a fairy tale with no real power in our lives or this world. You say you believe God, you say you trust Him, and, and I'm talking to myself as, as much as anybody else, and when Real things hit the fan, and when life comes in, I abandon all that that I say I believe or that we say we believe, and we run to things that we can control or that we can touch or that we think are going to save us, and we forget about God. We do just like Elijah in 19, we forget who God is, and we operate as if it's a fairy tale with no real power. Like, yeah, I know God, but i gotta, I got to get this job, or, I, or I'm not going to have any money. I know God, but I, I'm just going to settle for this relationship, because I'm never going to get what I'm looking for. Whatever, whatever the case may be. So what do you believe about your life? What do you actually believe about God? And then, that last point, freedom and courage comes when we repent. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4:17 through 24, it says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darker in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. That's not who you are. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. To put that off. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Your beliefs. About what's true. And to put on this new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And what does he mean? That is not the way you've learned Christ. Well, we're going to end with Ephesians 2, 1-9. Because Ephesians is a letter he's building upon it that's, that's in chapter 4 what do he say to him in chapter 2 in chapter 2 he tells us this and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind that is who you are or at least who you were There's nothing good. You're by nature children of wrath. There's nothing good in us. But this is who God is. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That is who you are if you know Jesus today. And raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, leaning into and understanding our total depravity and our worthlessness without God is a good thing. Because it leads us to accept and to have faith in the grace that God gives us in Christ Jesus. That he lived this perfect life. He died on the cross to take the punishment of our sin. And he spilled his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That is the grace that he has given us. And it is by that that we are saved. And it is by that that we can trust in these times of fear to know that God is with us. God is with us. We don't have to be dismayed. But here's what's also true. If he's not your savior, and if you haven't trusted him, he's not, but he can be, and he wants to be, when you have an opportunity to make that true. And so today as we close, we haven't done this in a little while, but I know this is a sensitive subject for so many of us. And so I've asked our community group leaders and some of our elders in training to come up here and kind of line the front. And they're just going to be up here to pray. And if you need to talk to someone, if you need to ask for prayer, if you need help, or if you want to know more what it looks like to actually know Jesus, we're here. So don't hesitate. The band's going to come up right now. They're going to to play our last worship song. Come on, guys. And I want you just to take some time to think about these questions. What do you believe about your life? What do you actually believe about God? And maybe that belief has wavered and you just need to repent and you need someone to pray with and just restore that and to take courage in the Savior you already know. Or maybe it's your opportunity to take courage for the first time. Either way, that's awesome. Either way, that's a great day of freedom and restoration. And it's a start to freedom. And if you want to talk beyond this and further... Feel free to come talk to me after service. We can even set up discipleship, counseling, anything that you need. We're here for you to do that as well. So let me pray. And then as I'm praying, guys, go ahead and come on up. And as the song's going, you feel the need to pray and God's leading you. Come. Don't be afraid. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to just share who you are. And God, I know we all struggle with this subject. We all have fears, we all feel unsure about things in our lives, and we're thankful to have a God who is near to us, who is in control, who does come alongside us and walk through this life with us, that we don't have to be dismayed, we don't have to be fearful. And so, God, I pray you'd work in each heart in this room the way that you need to, in Jesus' name.